Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries here to tell you how they built their brands. Welcome to episode 23 of the 24 Stories podcast. This week we have a really interesting topic and for a lot of our listeners, they probably would have never heard of this before, but I'm going to kick it off by introducing our guest, Martin, who's an occupational psychologist amongst the many other things. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thanks, Steve. I'm delighted to be here. Before we kind of get stuck into your career and, and how it all evolved, can you explain to me what occupational psychology is? Psychology is the study of behaviour. Yeah. So occupational psychology will be the study of occupational behaviour or work-based behaviour. Okay. And the skills that I would use would be basically to help We'd say people going into industry, like career management, yeah, yeah. or people within industry, be it conflict management or change, yeah. performance management. Yeah. So it's essentially applying the skills of understanding behaviour to the workplace. Okay. That'll be the essence of it. A lot of the listeners would be familiar with occupational therapy, whereby, mm. you know, you get aids to help you, whether it be crutches or a, a wheelchair mm. or whatever, you might need something to help you, you know, look at something visually or whatever. You're trying to aid them in terms of the organisational culture, the behaviour, the change, that type of thing. And it's still still enablement in that you're bringing, hopefully, experience and techniques together. So if a company wanted to go through change, you would work with people to understand the why. You might have some resistance to change, so you would work with people to understand the resistance and, and overcome it. Yeah. And now it doesn't solve everything. Sometimes when you're doing change, not everybody comes with you. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you could be coaching whereby you're using just uh, skillful questions to help a person to understand where they're at. Yeah. Or it could be helping a chief executive to understand their style and how it impacts the team. So it's essentially using a number of tools, techniques and garnished with experience to help any organisation, be it voluntary, profit, non-profit, to understand the items which are making it tick well and understand the items which are stopping it from being the best it can be. I'm guessing you aren't always doing this. No. So where did it all begin? I suppose I'm um, I'm near a birthday. I'm 67 next week. So well, happy birthday in advance for that. Thank you very yeah. much indeed. Uh, it wasn't always like this. You're right, but but it was to some degree that uh, when I was younger in organisations, say like scouting. Yes. And as a kid, I became interested in uh, teamwork because of scouting. Yeah. Or playing football, I became interested in teamwork. So it kind of always came with me. And then when I went to um, college. I deliberately studied a primary degree in occupational psychology or essentially a degree with an emphasis on yes. uh, occupational psychology. And then when I went working, I worked in personnel, HR. Okay. And during my work career, I just built on that by looking at a master's degree in occupational psychology. Okay. And there is, uh, I suppose, uh, an institute, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, which would be the institute uh, looking at aspects of HR, human relations. Yeah. And I became a member of that. I'm now a chartered, uh, I think it's called Chartered Fellow yeah. of the Institute of Personal Development. And basically that would have put a sort of a, an organisational slant, a professional slant yeah. on psychology as well. So interest initially, work showed me more of it. I tried to formalise it, going to education and building the education into my everyday life. So I'm guessing you were always fascinated by people, I'd say. You know, it's interesting. I think in some ways as well, that's the makeup. I'm, I'm extrovert by nature. Yeah. I, I come from a family of 14. 14. So in a lot of cases, you need psychology to survive <laughs> in a family so, of 14. So explain the situation. <laughs> 14 in the house. Is that like... 14 in a two-bedroom terraced house and my grandmother slept in one room and the rest of us slept in the other room. Whoa. And it was interesting. My father got killed in Irish Steel when oh, I was God. very young. Yeah. I was only 11 when he died. Yeah. But my mother was a great psychologist. And... She'd always say to me, you know, don't, don't tell me you love me, show me you love me. Yeah. So she was always showing you ways in which you could demonstrate something as opposed to just talk about it. So she was enabling you. She was of, absolutely. Yeah. She was a great psychologist and she always got us to work. Sometimes we were unaware of it, but for each other and with each other. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, that's the, the essence of good psychology. It's giving people skills to make them become aware yeah. and then helping them to create from that awareness a responsibility to act. That's yeah. the essence of what I do for my clients. That's the essence of what I do with companies with which I work. It's in one sense, helping them to become aware through the techniques of psychology. Yeah. And then when they become aware, to take that and move on themselves. And I'd imagine 
with 14 in the family, you have a lot of different characteristics. It's a bit like a company, a bit mm. like an organisation where you have the leader, yes. you have the quiet one. Yeah. All, all sorts. Yes. Yeah, all sorts. The and introvert, we, the extrovert. Yeah. And, and we know, again, in the family, we, we went the full array and then there were pockets of people. There were some extroverts who got on well together. We we never got on badly together, but some pockets got on better yes. or worse with different pockets. Yeah. But yeah, we had the full array. And, you know, for my mum's case, sometimes when people talk about leadership, they'd say, you know, who is your inspiration in leadership? Yeah. You know, would it be Gandhi? That man from Apple, his name escapes me. Yeah, Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs. Yeah. And in all cases, I come back and I say, no, it was my mother. Yeah. And I don't mean my Irish mother. I mean, she was just a smart dude. Yeah. And in, in being so smart, she sort of used techniques to build our team and she used yeah. techniques to sort of keep us together, but also used techniques to enable each of us to be independent, but stay with the with the family and just make your own way. But also she must have been phenomenal in terms of organisational management to have that many and then to, to lose your father, yeah. that, you know. And to run the show by herself, I mean, like, she, she that's was. a CEO, like, it was, it, it's in a, a house. CEO, absolutely. And I mean, when you see a lot of companies, um, the CEO has resources. Yeah. In this case, she had the widow's pension and yeah. and 14 hangers on. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, resources just were an issue all the time. Yeah. And it's amazing when you don't have resources, um, you actually become very effective at doing things yourself. You become very effective at sort of being wise, being yeah. smart in how you get things. Yeah. Like, for example, when we were young, we'd all mill around the table. Yeah. And, you know, our staple diet was sliced pan and uh, margarine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And what you would do is you'd reach in and you'd get a piece of bread. Yeah. And, but you'd always enable yourself to butter the bread in your hand because yeah. you didn't have the luxury of a saucer or a table. Yeah. So you'd be able to butter the bread uh, on the run, so to speak. Yeah. And I tell you, not a lie, sometimes if you're in a real hurry and you couldn't get on, you'd butter your hand and place the hand on the bread, take it out, clean one from the other, and the same result. Yeah. But resourceful was was what we picked up from a big family. Yeah, you had to. Absolutely. And it's, uh, and look, that gave me an interest as well in my, in my chosen subject, so to speak. It was about people. Um, my mother, she was a great encourager. And I think when you go into companies, the amount of people who think they're good CEOs by catching people out, yeah. the amount of people who think they're good CEOs, by, well, I'm saying it as it is. Yeah. In a lot of cases, a lot of people just need encouragement. In a lot of cases, they can still hear what they've done wrong, but they need encouragement to get it right. Yeah. And and my mother never gave us candy-coated encouragement as mm. in, oh, you're the best. But she reminded you of when things went well and sort of encouraged you to say, well, where could you have made it better? Yes. And she would have put a lot of emphasis on pragmatic results rather than talk. But she obviously enabled you and, and maybe encouraged you to kind of follow that academic dream maybe as well. Did oh, she? there's no doubt. And what's really interesting there, Stephen, is that not everybody in the family of 14 gets a break. I'm guessing. So, I got yeah. a break. Yeah. And Johnny, my brother, yeah. uh, Johnny, uh, he died suddenly, he was 68, 69, he died just a year after he retired. And when my dad died, Johnny really took over the helm. Yeah. And he was our leader, so to so speak. So did he go out working when he, he was younger? He went out working and he had an apprenticeship. And when he went out working, it enabled some of us to go to secondary school. Yeah. And I remember then at one stage, I had a chance to go to third level. Yeah. I borrowed some finances and I got some help from my mum as well and, and the gang. Yeah. So I know that when I went to third level, I had one choice. Don't mess this up. Yeah. And I didn't. Yeah. I took that Were you chance. you the first? I was the first and only. Yeah. yeah. Out of the 14. Out of 14. Johnny later did a master's degree. Yeah. When he was at work. But that would be it. But a lot of the grandchildren are obviously graduates of college. Of course. And the yeah. next generation yeah. got yeah. the benefit of, of the first generation, if you know what I mean. But yeah, I was in terms of formal education, uh, 24-7, seven days a week, I was the only one yeah. who got that chance. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm very, very grateful because it enabled me to explore aspects of career that I just would never have understood. So in some ways, college opened my mind, my mind more than anything. Yeah. Looking at models of change, looking at models of personality, looking at models of personal development. You sort of say, dear God. Back then, it was a lot harder, as you said, like mm. you were the only one in your family that went. Like when you talk about people and observing people, you went into a whole new culture of individuals, probably some very affluent Interesting point as well, yeah. I suppose the great thing about learning, I suppose young fellas as well, young women, young men, is that good people connected anyway. Yeah. You know, we were yeah. out to save the world. We were commentating yes. on the world with a cup of coffee. But interestingly, it kind of worked the other way as well. It, it gave you a confidence that you were integrating with people from, say, a more affluent background. Yeah. 
my mother left, never left me forget that, as in if I ever lost the run of myself. You got notions. Yeah, yeah. If you ever got notions, you were brought yeah. down to birth. But at the same time, she knew that she set me up. Yeah. She knew that she gave yeah. me a chance. And I mean, education is the most valid way. It's the best thing you could probably no give your children. It. Yeah. So it's such a gift. And I mean, it enabled you to get into places that you could never do otherwise. And in some senses, say, to be so lucky to get that chance. And suddenly then, you're exposed to all sorts of things that you never thought imaginable. Yeah. Aspects of psychology, change, industry, coaching. And where did all they come from? Or where did they all come from? And it was just that you had a chance to be exposed to that because of education. And like when you were in secondary school, like, did somebody tell you that you could do this in, in, in third level or did you have to go find it yourself? That's amazing. I, I think it found me. Yeah. You know, like everybody, you mentioned so many great people on your podcast. Yeah. And people who set up businesses. Yeah. You know, in some ways, the, the idea can be your baby, but all the other bits, it can be serendipity. It can be the fact you tried something and it worked out. It can yeah. be X. It yeah. can be Y. But I, I think I, I am extrovert. Big family confirmed that to some degree. Yeah. Sports, scouting, all of those enable me to work with other people and just I came interested in how things happened. Yeah. But in terms of uh, coaching, facilitation, helping companies, no, you're just lucky to be in companies and they say, look, we're doing this. And you say, what is it? And yeah. suddenly you just become exposed to things you, you didn't know were possible. So yeah, it found me. So when you left college, did you go straight into a big company or how did it happen? What happened? I left college and I went selling um, solid drawn and annealed stainless steel piping. And I was selling it uh, for a company called Cape Insulation, which were based in Clanmel. Okay. So did you have to move to Tipperary? No, I was, just a, I was just a young fellow. I was just out of college. And yeah. I mean, it was my turn as well to contribute to the kitty at home. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we'd all done paper over the years and various bits and pieces, yeah. but this was a full-time job. Yeah. So I did it for about a year. And then I got a call from a company. That company was Swissco. Yeah. And um, the personal manager was Eric Curtis. And Eric was moving on to a new job. And I knew Eric through scouting, through sport. Okay. And Eric said, look, there's a chance here for a job. It'll be a junior job because he just left. Yeah. And a guy called Patrick McSweeney, who was a great mentor in my life. Yeah. He gave me a chance. So I went into HR. Here's another thing. I found it. Now in the middle of working with people and performance appraisals and reviews and discipline and yeah. change. And uh, at that stage, I had done my primary degree. Yeah. And again, back to Patrick McSweeney, he gave me a chance through the company to study for a master's degree in occupational psychology. Were they a multinational, Swissco? Swissco were, I would say, they weren't a big multinational. Okay, small. They Ireland, Germany, maybe one or two other places, yeah. Swiss, obviously. Yeah. But they were a small company. And some of the things we were doing then as a result of even studying for occupational psychology, we were kind of ahead of ourselves as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. We were doing sort of um, quality circles and we didn't quite get to ISO, but we were doing quality marks and stuff like that. And say, hey, this is interesting and um, team working, even bringing people into work early that was seen as innovative induction, bringing people in before they started. Yeah. And, you know, it was nice. We a small company. And because it was a small company, you had to do everything yourself. Yeah. So I was in HR. I was doing safety. I was doing insurance. I yeah. was checking that the plant was safe. I was checking that the toilets were safe. I was doing discipline. I was doing yeah. recruitment. But it gave you a broad scope. One of the best things you can do, I'd imagine. There's no doubt about it. Because if you go in sometimes, again, into a bigger company if you're specialised, you may not know where the bits before you and after. Yeah came from. So you may not necessarily know aspects of integration which are important, backwards or forwards. Yeah. And uh, that's what it did. It gave us a broad skill. And I suppose I picked up as much about running a company as I did about HR. And um, it was small, about 240 people on site. And um, yeah, it was just a very rounded education. We were always looking for money. And you know something, we, we did really well. And I remember when I left, different story because it wasn't, it wasn't a good leaving. But um, all of the people that I recruited were still there after five years, six years, seven years. Yeah. Which in some ways you can say is a testimony to them, but also it was a testimony to the fact that we spent time in recruiting good people and they were great people. And why did you have to go? Why? Well, what happened was that um, the company was taken over by a multinational. Okay. Okay. And that company is called General Foods. Yeah. In, in UK. But... For whatever reason, we started on a new product and the product was called Perfect Timing. And it was the most imperfect timing in the history of the food business. Oh, <laughs> For what we had. In the sense that the seals that we used on our packs didn't work well. Yeah. The recipes weren't great. That wasn't my call. It was a technical call. Yeah. But what happened then is that 
there were some political heaves in the company. Mm-hmm. My boss, Paddock McSweeney, he was taken out and I was very close to him as was the production manager. Mm-hmm. So we were taken out as well. But I was glad I would have followed him anyway. Yeah. But we were taken out. And look, it's it's a nil wind that doesn't bring some good. Um, we were young. We had young children. We were in debt. I yeah. got a redundancy settlement and it just helped me to clear debts. But it's probably scary. You know, it's very scary because it's scary because when you're not working for yourself, which I am now, you think like an employee. Yes. And when you think like an employee, you give ownership of your future to the company. Yeah. So when the company take away your future, you feel, oh God, what am I going to do? Mm. And the last resource you look to for help is yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very scary at that stage. So coming home and saying to the kids, look, daddy's not working or saying to Fiona, yeah. my wife, that the um, contract is finished or the job is finished. It was scary. Yeah. And, you know, I was frantically looking to get back a job again so that you could say to everybody I was OK. Yeah. But um, scary on the one hand, but I'm impetuous by nature, but it did show me how to slow down. And when you slow down, it gave me a sense of, hang on a second, I own most of what I used in that job. Yeah. But I never had to market it for myself. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember I worked with UCC after that in the Department of Occupational Psychology or in Applied Psychology, my apologies. And after about eight or nine months, it just wasn't for me. I wasn't ready for college. I love college. So uh, did you go in and lecture for a I while? I went in a lecture. I was a statutory lecturer in the Department of uh, Applied Psychology. Yeah. But when I say I wasn't ready for it, it wasn't my time for that. Yeah. I see a fantastic connection between academic rigor and work. Yes. And places of work. And I, I feel the two are so important to each other. Right. So it wasn't for that reason. It was just that I was too, I was too itchy. I still had stuff to do. Yeah. And as a result, you were only in your early thirties at that at stage. At that stage, yeah. yeah. But then yeah. I went into uh, recruitment. Yeah. And I was about six months in my recruitment. And I remember two jobs after losing a job in which I had spent about fourteen years. Yeah. Then losing a job, and it was very unsteady. I spent six months in the college, another six months yes. someplace else. And it was a period I was unsettled, and I was unsettled because I'd come from a settled environment, and I, I wasn't settling because I suddenly didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And then I sat down and when I left the recruitment job, I said, um, I'm going to start my own company. And that was on Patrick's weekend. I think it was 1989. Oh. And uh, we set up a company called Proactive Management. Myself and my wife, Fiona. Yeah. And as they say in all the good podcasts, we've never looked back. <laughs> so, And it was, it was interesting. That's a long time now. I'm working for myself a long time. That is a long time. Mm. And... It's mainly a consultancy business. Hmm. Was there that many consultants back then? No. It was interesting you say that because they're probably more than you think, but they weren't as evident as they are yeah, now. They seem to be yeah. everywhere like now. Yeah. say coaching or facilitation yeah. or helping business, which is good as well because, yeah. I mean, not every one consultancy can help every one company. No, no. So it's nice to have that blend yes. and different insights. But I made, well, I thought about two mistakes looking back. One, I was in the middle of a recession yeah. and I started my own company. Yeah. And two, I was going out on my own in essentially in a practice trying yeah. to help organizations. And, you know, with, with limited but very good experience in one company. Mm. And in some ways, I had to get a, a conundrum to solve, which was how do I get into companies to show them what I could do mm. without necessarily having evidence that I was in other companies? So I had to kind of learn as I was going or maybe commercialize what I had learned in Swisco. Yeah. And converted into models that I could sell to other companies. Yeah. And I did and it worked. And one of the things I did from the very start, which I hadn't planned, but I'm glad I did it, was that I deliberately worked for big companies. So at that time, I did some work for the Henley MBA with Waterford Crystal. Yeah. I did some work with the Irish Management Institute. I did some work with Apple. Yeah. I did some work with Pepsi Cola. And people started saying, my God, you're reaching high. And I'm glad I did because when you go for companies like that, and currently I work with companies, we'd say like Dell or Flex or we'd say um, Irving Oil, the refinery, Alcon, yeah. Telus International. They're great companies. Great brands. But the fact of the matter is this, it teaches you to be careful about what you sell. And what I mean by that is that don't turn up to these companies if you're not prepared. Don't turn up to these companies and sort of go in with some bull that you think is a, a story that you'll get away with. Yeah. Be prepared. Yeah. Know your stuff. And then when you're doing that, if you just listen, you learn an awful lot from these people for nothing. Yeah, yeah. Like all those brands, they're ahead of the colleges. Yeah. They're setting the pace. Yeah. And if you listen every day, 
for the people that you're talking to or to the people you're talking to, you'd be surprised you pick up stuff. And suddenly the buzzwords that you're reading about, I learned that last year down in Dell. Yeah. Or suddenly somebody's come up with a new idea. I practiced that already in Flex. And like in the same way that my career felt to me, the psychology, mm. by going in and meeting people, you know, Bob Savage. Yeah. And you meet people like that. There's a guy called Pat Ring and Flex. These guys uh, are really, really smart dudes. Yeah. Gary Crowley and Abvi down in Carrie Tool. Listen to them and you pick up. And by picking up, and acknowledge that you picked up. Yeah. But in doing so, then you can use that elsewhere and it shapes your education. And by the way, if you're not ready, they'll tell you. And if you're not performing, they'll tell you. You know, this was a whole new thing. You got into these big organisations and you said you went after the big brands. Mm. But did you literally, how did you go about it? Did you go and knock on their doors? Did you send them in? Like yeah. there was no email or anything that's that a, time. That's was... a brilliant question because I remember I had an instrument called Team Builder. Yeah. And it was on a little three and a half inch disc. Yeah. And it was a sort of an interactive tool to let you look at your team style. And I'd go into companies and they'd say to me, geez, that sounds really interesting. Could I have a sample? But I'd only four copies of it all together. That was my complete stock. Okay, yeah. and you were trying to say, look, I'll send you one at the same time. Would you yeah. be interested if? Yeah. And that's that was one. Number two, I found, you mentioned about the amount of consultants around, that the guys that I, I asked are the guys that I visited. I found that they were sort of in the same boat as me. They were learning as well. They were young. And there was a lot of stuff came into Cork that wasn't there before. Yeah. The electronics, the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So we were all at it. We were all energised. We were yeah. all new. And all I was doing was bringing that energy. Can I talk to you? What can you do for me? And in some ways you were trying to big yourself up. Look, we could look at change. We could look yeah. at this. But in some ways as well, you were saying that out of eagerness and knowing that you could help. Yeah. But that then led to your own education. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that if you're looking at change, nobody wants you to come in with page 27 of a textbook. But at the same time, you had to look at good models and your experience. So that forced you to prepare. And of course, as you prepared for one, you became more eager and able with the next one. Yeah. And of course, when you went to the third one, well, have you done it with anybody else before? Well, as it turns out, I have. And, yeah, and so that's one led to the other. One, it just took the courage at the start to go out and say, now it wasn't a hungry sell as in poor me, yeah. look, we, we need the money. But it was a different sell because you were going into companies and, you know, there were wealthy companies. Even their furniture was different. This was yeah. a sort of a new land, a new place. Yeah. Yeah. But when you went in there and showed that, look, you mightn't agree with me, but I do believe in what I'm selling. Yeah. You got a chance. Yeah. And when you got a chance, that was the point then. Anytime I got a chance, I always said, I'm not going to blow this chance. So go home, study, ask people, learn, then test it. And then when you go in, most of all, try and blend the learning with real life. So if you got in, into a company and somebody said, Martin, in relation to that model of discipline that you just said to me, what would you do now if one of my employees said X? Well, if you can't answer that question pragmatically, you shouldn't be selling that model. Yeah. Yes. So that was the one thing. I always put myself out front. Anything I'm selling, guys, I'm selling because I think it will help you. Yeah. And if somebody challenges it, you may not agree with my defence, yeah. but I'll give you a defence. Not defensively, but I'll give you a defence of the model. Yeah. So at least between the two of us, we could manage to integrate your view and my view. Yeah. Yeah. And then I found after a while, you became comfortable in navigating the bigger organisations. Yeah. Like if you go to a small organisation, you go to the desk and there's, there's 20 people, you're part of the family by lunchtime. You are, yeah. But you go into a place, we'd say like Dell or Flex or TELUS International, I mean, there's 40 or 50 or 70 departments in the same campus. There's 2,000 people. There's 3,000 people. Yeah. So it's how you navigate that and the sort of optics of that. That became a whole new skill. And there are people who could be very good at my subject but could not navigate an organisation. Do they get intimidated by it? Sometimes you would. I got intimidated by it sometimes yeah. because you're going in and the VP of this and the VP of that are coming to town and suddenly you realise they're just normal folk. Yes. Right? And I mean, this this is a nice story, but at the same time, it's a very, um, it's a story that gives you a sense. I was working with a team in, in Cork about maybe four years ago, and that team was responsible for a $9 billion company. Whoa. And you know, my first reaction was, oh my God. My second reaction is that I knew I brought stuff of value. Yeah. But I met really nice, decent, committed people. And the fact of the is that their turnover was $9 billion, which is intimidating. Yeah. Their personalities were joyous. And if you were caught by the first one, your confidence was down. Yeah. If you have the courage to go to the next phase, you generally found that really good companies were really populated by really good people. 
And is that part of the recipe for success? I think so. I mean, and yeah. that's not candy coating. I mean, you'll, you'll see some people who are really yeah. um, tough guys, tough women. Yeah. But on balance, I found that 90% of the time, 90% of the people were always decent. Example, empathy, emotional intelligence. They knew their product. They gave people a chance. They trusted people. Yeah. And it works. Stephen, it works. Yeah. That's the point. Whenever you see people, well, I do this and I go straight in. And you look around and you see a person who's a demanding of their employees or you see a person who's disrespectful of their employees. Mm. They may not see it in their presence, but just go outside the door and you get a sense of what people think about them. And is that what you're brought in a lot, Martin, mm. then? Is it, is it a case that there's problems in-house in terms of conflict? W- would that be one of the main It would reasons? be one, but sometimes there's opportunities. But sometimes okay. the conflict that, it's not so much the conflict of itself. It could be a conflict that the company's not able to resolve, mainly because the players are too close to each other. Yeah. So you're a sort of a third party and you're an objective party. Yeah. So with that in mind, you could come in to help. You're not coming in to Solomon. You're coming in to try and, look, Stephen, you made a good point there. Now, John, you've made a good point. Can we try and marry them? Yes. And in some ways, it was a thing called constructive sort of confrontation where I'd ask you your story, paraphrase it and give it back, and uh, Martin's story, paraphrase and give it back. Can we talk about that? and try and get the people to reframe the problem and reown it and now look at ways in which we could solve it. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways as well, the magic wasn't necessarily in the techniques. They helped. The magic in a lot of cases is that you were not affected by the outcome. You were an outsider. You were disinterested. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and from that angle, you just brought objectivity that the company itself couldn't bring. And does that come in organisations mm. because people maybe get stuck in their ways or they're maybe they're too long or, you know, do you find that there's, there's commonalities there? There are commonalities and I suppose it's no different to uh, you and I. We, we've met before and we've worked yeah. together before. But say we were working together for the next six months in this office. Yeah. We met before and was just, we just got to know each other. But now yeah. we're really getting to know each other. Yeah. Okay. So some of your isms will start grating on me and some of my isms will start grating yes, on you. Yeah. It's just a natural way. Yeah. And if we don't talk about it, yeah. well, then they'll, they'll fester. And yeah. sometimes a person's at the coffee machine says, so how's it going? See that guy in there, he's driving me mad. And say, I heard you saying it. Yeah. Now, it wasn't really meant as bad as it sounds. But it, yeah. And you've got a conflict. Yeah. Or sometimes it can be a situation where one style overpowers another style. Yeah. And the interesting thing I find, back to occupational psychology, is that in business... It's styles rather than the people. Great. So if you have a person who's very driven, well, if he starts overusing that, people see him as overpowering. Yeah. If you have a person who's very nice, very much in the groove, they yeah. don't upset the apple cart. But if they overuse it, people sort of say, what's Martin doing? Yeah. His contribution, where's his contribution? Yeah. But the interesting point, there's a place for each. Yes. But the extreme of the driven person drowns out the extreme of the quiet person and the team doesn't work well. And then people like me will come in and sort of say, guys, let's look at what we have. Let's understand how yeah. they're great, but look how they work. Example, the driven person could say to the quiet person, you really have a lot of talent, but you need to push yourself a bit better. Yeah. Whereas the quiet person, if he knows the driven person after team working, could say, listen, stop taking over. Yeah. So it's not always negative. In a lot of cases, it's very positive that you're trying to get the essence of each person and get them to work together. But at the same time, I'm a firm believer that conflict is an important part of what we do. Disagreement is an important part of what we do. And if you have no disagreement, what happens is everything goes under the counter. And someday when you least expect it, it just Mm. blows up. So bringing stuff out in the open with a healthy dose of respected conflict or respectful conflict, you need it. Because if you don't have difference, you don't have anything. And I'm guessing if you have no disagreement, you probably get bad decisions being made because everyone thinks everything is perfect and yeah. then that's where you have failures yeah, in organizations. Absolutely. And so with that in mind, you, you do need people to hear different sides. Yes. In order for things to resolve. It can still be painful, yeah. but it's got to be down to people being open to yeah. hearing the other side. And then moving on. And the best leaders that I know, they'll hurt. Yeah. But they will listen to the feedback. Yeah. They'll take it away. They'll adjust. Yeah. And then when they adjust, they know at that stage that people appreciate the gesture that they've made. And they've come around a long way, but they're far more powerful now for having gone the way of listening and changing. And do successful teams need kind of, I suppose, lots of different kind of characters like that? Like, you know, the whole phrase opposite of track. Yeah, they, they do. An interesting point about team working is that decision making is much slower 
mm. than it is with an individual. Yeah. But it can be far more effective because you have more inputs. Yeah. But because you have more inputs, you have to respect the different players. Mm. So if you look at somebody, back to the guy I said, well, the goal who's driven. Mm. If he takes over, and remember where conflict can emerge. We're together now working for four weeks. And Jimmy jumps in with his driven style and he takes over. But he's mm. really good. He wants the team to work. Yeah. But he's not listening. He said, come on, come on. Then you have the quiet person who's saying, I wish he wouldn't speak like that because I don't feel confident in his presence. Yeah. Now, if that keeps going, we've got a problem. But when it, reach a, it reaches a crescendo where people say, Let's, this is not working, what's the problem? Well, our communication is poor or we're not getting on with each other. And if you can get in there and help people to look at why, well, can I talk about the driven style? What's the impact of that? Mm. Positively. What's the impact? What's the impact? Well, yeah. he drives decisions. He helps us to get on. Negatively, which is much less, what's the impact? Well, at times maybe you take over or at times you don't let me flow. Yeah. But look at the quiet person or the person who looks at quality. What's the impact? Well, they teach us when we make mistakes. But what's the downside? Again, uh, the minimal side. Well, at times you're just too factual and you don't give me any credit for making mistakes that I didn't mean to make. So, lads, can we look at what we have by way of strengths? That's the team. Mm. Can we have by what we use, overuse negatively? And can we use one against the other or one to challenge the other? And through that, we have our strengths and areas where we can improve. But if we do it as a group, we will harness what's in the group. But you'll never harness what's in the group unless you accept what's there. Yeah. It's positive impact. Yeah. The negative impact of its overuse. Can we learn that? Can we manage it? And boy, will we win. So, do you know, if you go back to your, I suppose, your the HR hat, a lot of the big organisations, they do a thing called strengths tests and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they get people to fill out these kind of quizzes about themselves mm-hmm. and, you know, they give you three possible answers. Is that a way of building a, a successful leadership team in terms of, you know, where you're weak at the moment and you need a certain type of person in there? Yeah. It is, but it's only part of it. And what okay. I mean by that, it's only part of it in that if you look at a personality profile, if you yeah. look at an aptitude test, most people answer it as they see it, but you need also to talk to people. So you would use those tests together with talking, sharing views, sharing ideas. So it would be much better instead of doing the test and say that Stephen is uh, the communicator, the marketeer. Yes. Okay. But you'd also say to Stephen, is that your profile? Yeah. What do you like about being a marketeer? Yeah. yeah. And the two together give you a sense. Yeah. Because some tests measure yourself. They're called ipsative tests. Yeah. Your view of yourself. Some tests are normative tests, how you compare against other people. Mm. But if I have an ipsative test and it says that I'm confident and dominant, yeah. that's only me to me. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily confident in your presence if you're a driven person. So you always use them together with teamwork, conversation, um, checking them out, playing with them, doing activities where the style show themselves in a particular way. And going back to psychology, mm. I'd imagine some people play a bit of a game as well. They know that the type of answers that need to be answered. Uh, you're dead right. But on balance, in the order of things, yeah. on balance, a lot of the, we'd say the strong test, yeah. 16PF, we say DISC, um, Myers-Briggs. Well, a lot of those tests, they have a way of checking along the way. If you're going down here on that, you should be saying this up here. Okay. So yeah. sometimes some yeah. tests will come back and say, like DISC, which measures dominance, influencing, steadiness and compliance. Yeah. If you go here with one answer and then go down here with another, it'll actually come back with say, sorry about this, but we have an invalid profile. Yeah. yeah. So it's really saying to you, not that you're bluffing, because people do it for different reasons. You might want to look good, to look different. Yeah. But in doing so, inconsistencies may come up and a lot of the tests can actually challenge that. On balance, that's not really a big problem. Most people yeah. who you use tests would probably get a good result together with an interview to pick a good person. And in terms of that DISC profile, would you see a commonality in terms of maybe the CEO? Is there a particular trait? I think it's a great question. No. No? No. That's an interesting point. They are all different. And let me qualify that by saying dominant person is a person who might direct, control, take over. Yeah. Influencing person is a person who would like to influence through communication and chatting. Yeah. Steady person is a person who might like to influence through team working, dependability, quality. Yeah. A compliant person is a person who likes security, but will show what they contribute by doing things correctly, standards. Yeah. Now, you know, and I know there are CEOs who've had all, all of them of differently would have had those. Yeah. But like everything else, the driven CEO, the dominant CEO, he'll find that his team working could be improved or he finds people are leaving the organization. Yeah. But equally, you could find a compliance CEO is not getting through to people because they stay in their office with the facts and figures and can't get out. Yeah. So it's like everything. 
you use the goodness of a style. Yeah. Watch the overuse. Yeah. And then from there, try and get the best of the style to manage your people, but bring in other people who supplement or complement your style. Yeah. So if you're a communicator and you're doing well, but you're not very good at the technical side, for God's sake, bring in a compliant person who'll help you. Yeah. So the good leader will see where he's short or she is short and bring in supplementary or complementary styles in his team or her team to help them. And that's important because a good leader will show in a lot of cases they're not as good as Stephen at, we'd say, digital marketing yeah. or social media. Yeah. But he's on the team, he's empowered, but yeah. Stephen is a good member and he equally reciprocates by relating to the strengths that the team leader has. Yeah. And none of that takes from the team leader. In fact, it adds to the team it leader. Yeah. It adds to his style and his perception of effectiveness. So you'd often hear that phrase, you know, you should hire someone that's better than you. Yes. And sometimes what happens, I know it's an ism or a saying, but yeah. I always find that A-class managers recruit A-class people. Yeah. B-class managers recruit C-class people. Is that because they're intimidated? Yes. Absolutely, yes. And what happens is the A-class manager says, look, I don't know this. I'm good at what I'm doing. I have confidence in myself, but I love what you're about. Yeah. And you're empowered. We still have rules of play. We're still a high-performing team. But I give you a chance to show what you can do. Uh, lo and behold, it works out. Yeah. Whereas you'll see some people, a good person comes in, they're corralled, they're controlled. I'll get back to you, not invented here. And suddenly the good person leaves and the sort of B-class manager saying, Phew, you know, he, he was never for us anyway. It, like it is fascinating, the, the culture. You know, it nearly kind of goes back to that, that family of 14 mm. that you were talking about. It's like that, the in-house battles. And even... We're just talking about leadership teams, but mm. what about even their employees as well? And, you know, how do you deal with frictions between employees and their managers, mm. which is kind of a different dynamic, isn't it? It is. And you've touched on something there, which I think can come in there. It's a different dynamic, but the the essence of hurt or confidence or conflict are the same. Yeah. Okay. But there's two things emerge. One, I think it was Douglas McGregor said one time that culture would eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah. So it's the culture. What kind of a culture do we have? And if there's a culture where it's okay to disagree, yeah. if it's a culture where we respect disagreement, well, you'll find there'll be less of it. There'll be less personal challenges because people feel okay in that environment. Yeah. Or sometimes it could be a question of, no, no, we don't want any hassle. So it goes underground. Yeah. So conflict, if it's out in the open and respected and there's rules around it, can be far more effective as a decision-making process. Yeah. And overall, the culture really is interesting because if you can get people to chat, agree, disagree. Another aspect about culture which is important, it's called an overarching idea or an overarching aim. My brother Michael, when he was younger, remember we talked about ourselves and there wasn't a lot of money around in the house and we were always challenging yeah. for games of football outside. But ever, whenever we were in trouble, Michael used to always say, us the Brennans, we're the Brennans. Yeah. Okay. And that was the overarching aim. That was the overarching theme. And my mother would always start to say to us, one thing I never forget that she said to us as kids, never ever look down on anybody. Yeah, yeah. But before you look up to somebody, they must earn it. And yeah. see, so what happened then is that there was an overarching aim that stopped the conflict. Yeah. We didn't repeat it like that. We just said, don't do it. Don't do it. And another thing she said to us, which I thought was brilliant, if you don't want to lose something, don't risk it. Yeah. No matter how little, don't risk it. Your family, your business, yourself. Okay, so those become overarching aims. Mm. And then what happens is they guide culture in such a way that it resolves conflict along the way. Yeah. But one other interesting thing that can happen in companies is that managers actually teach their employees how to fight. So you come into me from Department A and you, you're, you're talking to your boss and your boss says, I'm not accepting that. Go back and tell Martin we're not accepting it. And you come back to me and say, we can't accept that. And I go to my boss and say, well, he can go to hell. You tell him we're doing it this way or else. Yeah. Now we have two players Two people at the Causing. ropes, yeah, teaching two guys how to fight. Yeah. Okay. So it's very interesting. It's very important for managers to be aware of the role that they play. Their own exemplary behavior can ensure that we have conflict or not in an organization. And who sets the culture? Is it the founders or, or does it evolve as time moves on? Again, a great question. I think the founders will always come in with an idea of how things should be. Yeah. But I think what happens then is we all get busy working. Mm. And then when we're busy working, it emerges. Yeah. Because culture 
sounds fancy, but all culture means is how we do things around here. Yeah. So if we're sloppy at admin, that's how we do things around here. Yeah. Um, if the reception is untidy, that's how we do things around here. Yeah. I worked in companies where people were literally bullied within an inch of their lives. And that's how we do things around here. Now, the leadership have a choice that they try and break that yeah. for a more effective culture. Yeah. Or they accept it and manage around it. And I know a lot of companies who manage around it with, shh, not now. Yeah. I know a lot of companies who become very skillful at avoiding conflict yeah. instead of taking it on because the impact, be it through industrial action or be it through mm -hmm. something, the impact is too great. So the leaders definitely will have a desire for it to work. Mm. But as an organization gets bigger and you don't look at it, the yeah. culture should be looked at every day. Yeah. We should be able to say every day, let's, if we're doing something, is that against our culture? It yeah. is. Why are we doing it? Is that against our values? It is. Why are we doing it? And the interesting point from there is that when the organization gets bigger, so we have 50 people and we're going out for drinks and then we become 400, then we become 600 and suddenly the driving force of the early days is gone. gone. And if you look at the Gaussian curve, so at that Gaussian curve for culture, you have 10% on the left who just love it yeah, and 10% on the right who hate it. And you'll have forces within your organization which are against the culture that you set up. And if you're not looking at it daily, that subculture could take over. And is it a case that you should try and move them on if they're not fitting in with the culture of the organisation? You, you, you should try and fix them first. But I mean, yes, is the answer. Because they could upset the rest of them. Absolutely. Now, you don't pick somebody and say, you disagree yeah. with me, so you're out. Yeah. But if somebody is a bad fit with your organisation, why would you spend most of your time yeah. trying to negotiate with and please and cajole people who don't care about your organisation and none of your time in rewarding the people who love it? Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is yes, but it doesn't actually have to be you're out of here. It has to be done respectfully. There's legislation protecting jobs. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're not managing culture every day, I guarantee you, Stephen, culture goes where it's going. If it's a good fit to where you are, yeah. it will work. If it's not, it will bury all the goodness that you started out with. Should it be written on the wall? You know, you go into an organisation yeah. and they have their mission statement, their vision statement on the wall. Sometimes I think it's just there for show. It is. In a lot of cases, it's not in other cases. But in some cases on the wall and it was determined by another person on another continent and it's not been translated into Cork. Yes. And what happens then is that people say, do you know the culture? Well, I know the words and I learn if I'm going for an interview. Yeah. But that's not culture. And you really know a culture. So you say to me about the family 14 or, or I say to you about your family. Yeah. So what do we do at Christmas? Everybody knows what we do Christmas Day. That's culture. That's culture. Everybody yeah. knows what we do on the Easter break. That's culture. Yeah. So the more... That's vocal, verbal, the more that's picked up by people's habits, yeah. that's a far more effective culture than means a process or procedure. Far more effective. Like, if you look at the culture, should it fit so? Should there be subcultures in terms of, you, you mentioned they're an international brand mm. that moved to Cork. Should they try and adapt the culture to fit the local audience, as in their employees? Because it's going to be different to, let's say, if it's from Japan yeah. originally and now all of a sudden yeah. it's in Cork. And you can blend the two. I mean, I, I've worked with Japanese companies in Cork. Yeah where the two cultures merged fantastically. And there yeah. was some lovely stuff between the two cultures. Yeah. But if you recruit local managers, the reason you're doing it is that, what's that saying? You, you sort of think global, but act local. Uh, local. Yeah. Yeah. But you are getting a situation where you're blending the two. Or sometimes you can get a situation where there's a culture, but the local managers are working towards the external culture. Yes. Like, for example, the bosses in America or the bosses in England. And each Friday, they're reporting back there. So we just spend a week doing things um, to help the boys report back, our girls on a Friday. Yeah. And that's not culture. That's just yeah. everybody doing what we have to do to keep a job. Yeah. So yes is the answer. The more it's translated into a local understanding of what we're about, and not only that, but influenced by the local people as well, yeah. the more powerful it is. So you've been involved in, in this type of, I suppose, business for the last over 30 years. Mm you must have seen cultures kind of change. And what I'm thinking in my own mind about this is some of those new tech companies. Mm. And even you mentioned, well, go the likes of TELUS, that even the way they design offices, mm. they're based around the well-being of the staff and things like that. Yeah. It must be been a huge shift in, in that kind uh, of culture. Again, I think it's a great insight because there are a lot of great companies who are very interested in staff. And they're very interested in the well-being of staff. And then in the same time, there are some of the, not so much older companies, but older cultures. Yes. Where, you know, they are interested in staff, but the way they do it is not the same as. Yeah. And at the same time, 
there's a blend. And I think the blend is important that sometimes you can have, you know, just say working from home, from home right now. Yeah. And you're trying to relate to psychological well-being of individuals at home. Yeah. Some people are starting to come back to the office and yeah. then people are talking about can we have three days at home and two days at the office. Yeah. And they're interesting conversations. But I think a good culture needs to look at two things. One is the well-being of the employee. Yeah. But two is the success of the business. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people may have to fully come back to the office. Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that the manager who's asking them to come back full time does not care about the well-being of the person. A company needs a certain resource in a physical place. But they have to be there. Yes. But in other cases, I do feel that an organization that thinks about people, that listens to what people are saying, yeah. and that they buy not only the person, but their brains and insight, they will outstrip other companies by a country mile every day. Every day. And you'll see some companies, and I've worked in them over the years, where I've said to you earlier, people were bullied to an inch of their lives and people coming into work and being literally frightened going up the steps of the building. And to think or imagine that managers left that happen because, well, it was easier to let it happen. Yeah. But the extreme on the other side is careful as well, that we must get a situation where the well-being and the goodness are media for getting the business achieved. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a two-way respect. So sometimes then, if there are tough decisions to be made, they're not being made out of badness, they're being made for business expediency and it can't all be, well, I don't feel good about this or I don't feel good about that. Now, you may think I feel, I'm cynical. I'm not. Mm. But I think it, it, it has to be a rounded version. It has to be, yeah. yeah. It has yeah. to be a rounded version and you have to care about people and you know people care about the business. But the business was started for a purpose and it's given people a livelihood and it's given people a sort of an income. And the more that that's a duality of respect, the more effective it is. But when you talk about, you know, organizations where maybe there'll be a lot of bullying going on and stuff mm. like that, I'm guessing, you know, that practice alone probably stops any innovation. It stops, you know, stops any breakthroughs coming through in that company. That It stops growth. It does. It stops growth. It stops innovation. You find sometimes you're getting a taxi from the airport to the company and the taxi driver can tell you about the company because of what was spread around locally about it. Yeah. It stops people uh, disagreeing. It stops people putting their hand up. And essentially, in a lot of cases, the cases I talked to you about, uh, it, it didn't kill the company. Mm. But I definitely know that people won't be queuing up to... To go there. Don't go there. But the people who are there are not queuing up to leave. Yeah. Because that's become their lifestyle and the normal yeah. company has become their style of, of living. And when they look back, there was good parts as well, very good parts. But it's just a pity, some people say, you know, it's an awful pity that we put up with that negativity. It's an awful pity that we left that person be a jerk and not challenge it. Yeah. It's yeah. an awful pity that I didn't have a chance to grow because that person took my confidence. Yeah. That, that's whether it is work or not, that's just... So sad. It is sad, yeah. And yeah. and I would even go so far as say unforgivable because it was possible to do yeah. it a different way. And the impact that that has on all those people Absolutely. going forward. Absolutely. Probably struggle even mm. when they leave. Absolutely. And does that stem out of maybe the Industrial Revolution and stuff like that? Mm. Like, you know, you mentioned the likes of Irish Steel at the start mm. and your father was there and stuff. Like, back in those days that maybe you were just told, do a job. Yeah. And, but nowadays... There's a lot of time given to flexi time for company for staff. Mm. They they give them free food. There's it's like the opposite, isn't it? I remember my father telling me when he was on the quayside in Irish Steel, when five gentlemen uh, boil a billy can, mm. a billy can of water to make a ten o'clock break. Okay, and there was no break. Yeah, and the foreman felt it his duty to kick the billy can out of the fire. Yeah. Okay. Proceeded to tell the men get to work. One of those gentlemen swung a punch at him. Yeah. And he never worked for all six years because that foreman had the power to spread the word around he's a troublemaker. But yeah. the foreman was the troublemaker. But having said that, it's a bit like looking at, um, i got to be careful, cancel culture and revisionist yeah. culture. Yeah. That's yeah. the way it was. There were a lot of good people working there. There were a lot of good foremen working alienated. there. Yeah, but there were a lot of people. That's just the way industry was done. Yeah, It was hard. It was hard. Industry was different. And right now, it's different. And trying to involve people and engage people is different. But you still have some people who don't play the game yeah. well. You still have some people who challenge the culture and you still have some people who are negative despite the best efforts of companies to make them feel well at work and to feel effective at work. Of the two, 
which one would I prefer? You'd probably expect an answer somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Because there was some great values of work back along. Loyalty yeah. to the company. Yeah. A career for life. Um, some of the, the things that a job is done when it's finished and the paperwork is done. Yeah. And so in some senses, there were a lot of standards back there that can sound very alien, but they're really good ways to run a company. Is it got to the stage where people are nearly too laid back? You know, that they've been so nice to the staff that the staff are kind of, I'll get it done later, you know. I, I think on balance, I, I feel that if no matter what era you worked in, if you've got a good manager or yeah. a good team leader, whether you have cushions, pillows or hard seats, yeah, that manager will know that group well enough to get the best out of them. Yeah. So yeah, some people abuse the soft pillows, but yeah. the soft pillows of themselves are a good idea. Yeah. But a lot of people, and you watch a good team in action, it's down to the fact that it doesn't matter the physical aspect of it. I get my people, I understand my people. They can come to me, they can talk to me, they can challenge me. I can challenge them. We can talk, celebrate, listen, agree, give feedback, disagree. Yeah. And between us, we become a high-performing team. There's no doubt about it. Modern companies and offices, they're a delight to be in. They're, yeah. they're even a space that we know, it's a beautiful space. Yeah. But it's still down to people looking after people, people understanding people, and making adjustments to motivate people based on the styles that work in that team. And for me, that's still the secret of success. And is that the secret of your own success? Is that how you built your I, brand? Was kind of getting on with people? I think the feedback that I would have gotten and received over the years is that, yeah, I do get on well with people. Yeah. I'll add one more, probably no different to your business, is I work extremely hard for my clients. Yeah. So I would ring a client at 10 o'clock and say, I just found out something you might be interested. Yeah. There's no invoice for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's part of a relationship. It's part of a, a partnership. Yeah. And so I think that's number one. Number two, if I'm working with colleagues one to one, I'll always take an opportunity to represent them positively upwards. And number three, if I'm working with a company, and I see their values, I will do everything I can to adjust my work to their values. And, you know, I think that's always been my secret, which is basically working hard, being loyal, bringing what you can to help that client. Don't stay too long in a company. You know what I mean by that? I've been in and out of companies over years. Yeah. But if you're in a company every day of the week for seven or eight months, you're no good to them. Yeah. Because then you become part of the politics and the furniture. Yeah. Whereas if you're coming in and out, you bring insights from other companies that can help people. Those observations. Those observations. Yeah. And also you get a chance to challenge the company, whereas if you're in there all the time, it could be you might be learning, well, if I challenge, I might never an invoice next month. you got to drop that. Yeah. If you go in for invoice, you're lost. Yeah. Invoice yeah. helps. Yes. But if you go in for invoice only, you've lost because you're not bringing your essence. You're not bringing your insight and you're not willing to challenge. Is it a case that you, you feel that you're going in there to help them get over whatever obstacle yeah. or to get them to the next level. Yeah. Absolutely. And what I bring then is I bring, I think, a value proposition which is based on interpersonal skill, understanding the culture of that company, merging what we're trying to get like by way of change yeah. with techniques that I bring in and do it in such a way that we together work on the success. However, I'll always insist that I have skin in the game. Yeah. Because there's no sense in me coming in, Stephen, and saying, look, well, I've done some coaching. I've done my bit and I've done some courses. I've done my bit. If it fails, I want to hurt as well. Yeah. And that's what keeps me up late at night. Like that could have gone better or how do we fix this? And I remember about um, nine months ago being up late at night. My office is across the yard from the my house. Yeah. I was in the office. I'd started a conversation with the CEO at 10 to 10. It was now 10 past 12. My wife had come up from watching the telly, thought I was in bed and locked the back door and I was locked out. <laughs> right. But the interesting yeah. point, yeah. and he was the same, is that yeah. that's what we were doing. That's what you were doing. Yeah. And I think if yeah. you're not prepared to go in there and match the strongest contribution of the fittest player, yeah. I don't think you're giving a good service to your client. Yeah. And I think that's really important. So I'm guessing it's evolved so as well because you were saying you were on a call. Was it always calls or were you kind of forced to go down that road? Two years ago, when COVID kicked in, like how, like yeah, it's 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 interesting in that because this is this the, the, my response to COVID was family fourteen response that as we started to look at Patrick's day twenty twenty, so even late nineteen, I would have said maybe February nineteen. Yeah, I started ringing colleagues in the companies, um, good colleagues, good friends, and I said, "Can I go on phone? Can I go on Zoom?" Yeah, and every one of them said the same thing. 
check them out. If they want to do it, they can do it. So nobody stood in my way, but the client could still say, I don't want to do it. Yeah. And fair use to the clients. And I was, I was very honest with my clients. Yeah. I said, look, it would help you, but it would help me as well. Yeah. In other words, it will help me to continue having income. Yeah. And I'll do my very best to make this work for you as well. Yeah. But it wasn't a question of sort of spinning it in such a way. This is a great new invention. Yeah. But the fact that we could do that, it enabled me to start getting into Zoom and bits and pieces early. Yeah. And as a result of that, by the time we did the first lockdown, my 2020 was the busiest year I had in 14. Wow. Mainly because people were themselves um, shocked. People themselves wanted to talk. Teams wanted direction. Yeah. People were were in the headlines. Yeah. They really were, where's this going? They were worried about their families. All the things that we heard about. Yeah. Is my leadership good enough? Can I manage from yeah. remotely? Yeah. And and it became so interesting. And one of the companies I worked with, we started putting together a bit of a paper that said, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. That people have the needs. Yeah. And right now, the needs of people are down at the very end of the hierarchy. Security needs, physical needs. Yeah. So we need to turn it upside down and leaders need to change their style yeah. to look after the needs of their people. Somebody yeah. else runs the business for the moment but look after people so that they become psychologically safe and get ready to move on again. Yeah. And yeah. so from there, I did some work in the Bonds and it's a great place to work. And I worked yeah. with the um, the Don, the Director of Nursing and her management team. Yeah. And we met a couple of times during COVID, but to go in and watch those people yeah. and their daily activities puts every single thing that I put so far into context. These people were genuine heroes. They were just in every day and their operation, their production yeah. was... Will he make it or not? And we're still going in there like just warriors. And having to face. And having to face it. Yeah. So it was great to be meeting with people like that because yeah. what I picked up from those wasn't sort of extreme overt courage. It was duty. They went yeah. in into their job. They were always challenging themselves and others. They came out, but they took it in their stride, Stephen. But they were all leaders, I'd imagine. They were incredible. So that gave me a sense to go on site. And then what happened, because I was doing some work with the pharmaceutical, yeah. And the electronics, they were all, uh, remember they were called uh, in industries of importance. There was some term they were given. Yes. Necessary yeah. industry. Yeah. So I had about seven letters in my bag. <laughs> and every time I stopped at the checkpoint, I was showing, look, here's I'm going here because yes. I'm working for the company. And like everybody else under pressure, I did yeah. my piece to keep my company going. Yeah. So you mentioned at the start mm. of the podcast, you're turning 67 next week. Mm. So a lot of people, when they get to that age, they're thinking, I'm heading to Spain or somewhere and going away. Obviously, you are not. No, no, no and, and not either am I driven and sort of saying, you know, I'm going to live and I'm going to work forever. I like working. So, number one, I'm not ready to stop learning. Number two, I get a chance to meet with really good people. So, that's a two-way process and yeah. it keeps you alive. Yeah. And so, I'm not going full tilt. Last year, I tried to reduce my um, activity by 25%. Kind of failed, maybe 20%. Yeah. I'm going to try and do the same this year. Yeah. But I'll hold that 50% for maybe another year or two. Yeah. And then what I'll do is sort of not even ease out. I won't retire. When it's right, it'll stop. I now know that I'm enjoying working for people and using my wisdom. Yeah. And that's what comes with the 67. And I feel that my value proposition involves a wisdom. And there's always young people to help and mentor and coach. There's always organisational leaders who just need to say, Jesus, that's interesting. I didn't look at it that way. Yeah. So I'm going to take that wisdom, that bit that you said there, mm. and I finish every podcast with two questions. Mm. And the first question is, um, what tip would you give a business to build a brand? And I'm thinking in terms of building a positive culture, what, what tip would you, would you give them? Set up a focus group right through your organisation, straight down, yeah. member from each level, and ask two questions. What are we doing good? What are we doing bad? And from that, learn what you should change. That's just such a simple piece of advice, but I'd imagine very few businesses do it. They don't have time in a lot of cases. It's time, time, time. Yeah. But, you know, even get somebody in. I don't mean me, somebody from another department. Yeah. But listen, don't edit it. Just what are you hearing? Yeah. What are the priorities? Fix the priorities. Let people know. And if you get a change from that, keep that change in your presence every single day. Otherwise, it slips back. And the second question I have is, what tip would you give an individual? So I'm thinking there's a lot of owner managers listening mm. to this um, and maybe they have a good number of employees. What tip would you give somebody like that? I used to work with uh, JJ O'Connell, I don't know if you know JJ, yeah. in Plato. And we did a lot of work early days. So I do a lot of work with smaller companies. Still. Yeah. But one of the things that I think we learned from Plato, and I was a small company myself, mm. is not to step out of your business altogether, but yeah. sometimes just to step away. 
step away and look back. And if you were doing business with you, what do you think? Yeah. And if you think it's bad, change it. Yeah. So just look back and see yourself and looking at you in that company with those people and saying, are you spending too much time taking over? Are you spending too much time on this or that? Are we not getting the right culture? And if you've got two or three items that you see you, you wouldn't like yourself, yeah. go in and change them and enjoy it from there. Great piece of advice. Martin, it's been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Same here, Stephen. Thanks so for coming in. Thank you very much as well. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the 24 Stories podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn at 24 Stories Tribe. I'll be back next week with a brand new guest.